This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, from fake news to conspiracy theories, using logic to safely navigate the information landscape. If you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction, the information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I am joined by Dr. James Zimbring, uh, who is a professor of pathology at the University of Virginia, where he pursues basic and translational research in the field of transfusion medicine and blood biology. He has an MD and also a PhD in immunology, both awarded from Emory University, and he's published over 160 research articles. Uh, James is the recipient of multiple awards for his research and teaching and an elected member of the American Society for Clinical Investigation. For over a decade, he's taught courses to graduate students on the philosophical underpinnings of scientific, scientific approaches to basic biomedical research, a topic seldom taught in a formal setting to students of science, despite the essential role it plays in scientific research. While delivering lectures as a visiting speaker at different research universities, James frequently delivers lectures on the practice of science itself to students and faculty alike. Out of these activities, he has authored a book for lay audiences and scientists alike entitled What Science Is and How It Really Works. Most recently, and the primary focus of today's episode is discussing his latest book, Partial Truths, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. Anyway, James, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, no, it's completely my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. It sounds like uh, we have both a strong interest in teaching the philosophical foundations to, uh, to future scientists and why it's so important. But, uh, but, but before we kind of move into the um, um, move into the other questions, I want to really know kind of how you got your interest in science and where it came from and why medicine, all of these, uh, all of these fun things. I always ask, I always ask uh, scientists who come on these questions. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, you hear common so stories from a lot of scientists that I was always interested in how things worked. And as a, as a kid, you know, my room was littered with the things I'd ripped apart that no longer worked, but I saw how they had worked previously. Um, and when I got into college, uh, I became interested in chemistry. I was very fortunate that uh, as many undergraduates are fortunate that a professor there allowed me to start doing a research uh, project in his lab, doing organic synthetic chemistry. And I caught the fever, right? Like many of us do. Um, and so, uh, having gotten my degree in chemistry, I was, had always been interested in, um, trying to mitigate human disease and suffering. And so the medical sciences were very attractive to me, 
uh, but the the MD PhD route in particular because um, of the the research training and the the mechanistic dissections you can do. And if I had to like unbalance, I'd probably say I'm more of a scientist who kind of fell into going to med school instead of the other way around. But you meet you meet all all paths. Uh, and then um, after I I got uh, my my degrees and I did my uh, training. Uh, clinically in clinical pathology, which includes transfusion medicine and immunology, uh, transfusion medicine is basically human immunology applied. And so the two kind of merged together. And, and that's how I got into my, my scientific field of study. So in particular, because I'm, I'm just really curious here, uh, with the immunology component, what kind of, what does your research really focus around with that? Right. So most people have heard of ABO blood group antigens that, you know, if you don't give the blood match to the right person, then it can cause uh, all kinds of medical problems, including, you know, death. But what most people are, don't know is that there are at least 340 antigenic differences that vary amongst humans on blood. So anytime you're transfusing blood, you're exposing the recipient to a lot of foreign stuff and the immune system of the recipient can react uh, to things. Now, once you have an immune reaction to someone else's blood, you can't receive blood from that person anymore. And if you only need one transfusion, maybe two, that's no big deal. But for people who need chronic transfusion, and there are a lot of people who need chronic transfusion, some of them make antibody after antibody after antibody, so much so that some people die uh, for want of a transfusion because we can't find blood or enough blood that they can receive that they don't have antibodies against. So, and, and this is this is going on, you know, with uh, one out of every 70 Americans is transfused each year. So, and what the, what the clinical laboratories do, the blood banking laboratories, is they monitor the immune reactions of pretty much everyone who's transfused. But uh, understanding how and why and when the immune system responds to red blood cells, which by the way is different from a virus or a vaccine, uh, is therefore of really of great clinical importance. And that's, that's how my immunology and my clinical work kind of merge. Yeah, that sounds remarkably important. Like you said, I mean, so many people are receiving these blood transfusions every year. Um, yeah, and I had no idea how complex it is. But then again, I'm yeah. not an expert in that area. You are. And like so many things, uh, they're just remarkably complex when you, um, when you focus in and take a deep dive into it. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I... So the, uh, so I, I get the, uh, the story of where the, uh, the scientific interest comes from and, uh, why you went to school for medicine and to become a medical scientist, where, when did your interest in like the philo philosophical foundations or philosophy of science, where did that come from? When did you start thinking like, Hey, you know, I'm a scientist or maybe, maybe you had it during your training, but like, you know, I, I didn't, I know that personally, but like some point you kind of have this, um, this realization, like, I don't really understand the foundations of science of why it works. I mean, I understand how to kind of turn the machine and get results mm -hmm. on the back end. But so I'm curious as to where that, uh, where that kind of came, came from well, for you. Yeah. I think most people, um, whatever they're doing, if they do a task kind of over and over again, over a long period of time, they start to see patterns of merge in not just what they're doing, but how they wind up doing it. So I think all scientists probably reflect upon what it is to be thinking scientifically, what it means uh, to make a scientific knowledge claim, you know, what the epistemic properties of science are, but we're not formally taught it. So when I was a assistant professor at Emory, newly hired, I was assigned to teach a course in uh, methodologies of immunology. It's not uncommon for a newly minted professor to be given kind of entry-level course to teach. 
but the, the curriculum was pretty much up to me. So this is at Emory. And uh, the first year I kind of taught, this is a Western blot, this is flow cytometry, you know, this is an ELISA. These are all techniques we use in, in to study the immune system. And uh, the students seemed pretty un uninterested in that. They could read that, you know, in a protocols book. What they really wanted to know was how to interpret science and how to think about it. And it was very humbling to me because I realized I couldn't teach that to them because no one had ever taught it to me. And so I, I, I kind of went on a course of self-education for many years, refined each year, which teaching the class and ultimately got into it so much that it became an area of scholarly work for me. Uh, but I think, you know, a lot of people would say, I'm not interested in this. I want to do the thing. You know, a, a race car driver doesn't need to understand the principles of an internal combustion engine. But I don't think that a race car driver is ever asked by other people to prove that the car exists, right? So scientists find themselves in a somewhat different circumstance. And the more I've taught this course, the more gratifying it's been, because one, of course, I learn more from my students than they learn from me, because that's always the case if you're paying attention. Uh, but also because I think that students are hungry for this. And it's very strange, right, that um, we teach students in sciences all about instrumentation, right? We, we measure natural phenomena with all manner of instruments. It can be a flow cytometer, a mass spec, a telescope, a microscope, what have you. And we teach them about how that instrument works and how that instrument fails and what kind of errors they might encounter. But all of us have one instrument we have to use, which is the human cognitive apparatus and the logic constructs that we use. And it's very odd to me that we don't teach the particulars of that one instrument all of us have to use uh, to us. And so it's really been a passion of mine because I think it's, it's essential not only for the practice of science, but for the communication of science to non-scientists, which I think we can argue is, is progressively failing right now and with very dire effects. And we have to find a common dialogue. So all of those things really motivate and excite me for the topic. Yeah, and, and I, I completely agree about what you just said there towards the end about it's really important for scientists to know this because it helps with the communication aspect of how science works because yeah, there's definitely a breakdown and I've had a lot of people um, on and this usually comes up with, uh, with individuals who are scientists and also out there actively engaging with the public where it's just this, um, there, uh, there's definitely a breakdown, something's going on there and scientists need to do a better job of it. But anyway, I, uh, okay, so you, so you didn't actually tackle this uh, learning about the philosophy of science until you were actually a professor and had to teach it. That's yeah. interesting. That is interesting. And I, at the same time, think it's a, a bit of a tragedy because <laughs> as I alluded to <laughs> earlier, I mean, I think I, I had to teach myself. I didn't learn it in my scientific training either. I just, it, it, I don't understand why it's not taught. It just needs to be, Agreed. it just, it should absolutely be taught to all scientists. And I'm not saying that all scientists also need to be philosophers. It's not like you need to go get a separate degree, a philosophy degree. I mean, maybe a minor or something like that, but at least, you know, taking some basic courses in logic, learning about, you know, cognitive biases, things like that. And uh, how it is that science is actually capable of producing new knowledge and why, why we can be so confident in that. Yeah, and, and at times tragically wrong, right? But what's, yes. what's interesting <laughs> is that, you know, since the 1920s or 30s, the philosophy of science, the history of science, the study of science, the, the metacognition has not been carried out by 
practicing scientists. Now, that may sound a bit rude because it has become a science on its own, right? The science of science. But largely, uh, you and I and other scientists are the subject of study by these other groups. You know, we may be studying nature, they're studying us. And they write about us and they publish about us and they analyze us. And all of that analysis they do of us is largely unknown to us, right? So it's kind of uh, weird. Uh, it's almost like, um, uh, you know, a bird walks into a bookstore. This is to kind of uh, paraphrasing uh, Richard Ryman, walks into a bookstore and finds a book on ornithology and starts flipping through it. But the people who wrote the book aren't birds. They've never been birds. And so I think that... Um, it's also important to understand that philosophers and, and historians of science ha are handicapped because in most cases, in most cases, all they have to study is the products of science. Maybe they can go to conferences and embed themselves a little bit in the practice of science, but they basically have our work product. And the way we report science is very different from how we do it. And, and that's, that's not deceptive, that's necessary, right? Because if, if you wrote a historical narrative of what you did in the lab and the mistake you made and the thing you broke and then you were confused by this, but you figured out that, it would be unintelligible and it would waste people's time. So we, we write science in a very, uh, in, in a logical way that the, the positivists would have called a rational reconstruction. We kind of, we put it in a framework that it's gonna make sense, but that's not how we do science. And so I think that there also has to be a communication between the birds and the ornithologists. We, there has to be that kind of help in analyzing things because the textbooks are right, you know, and they're wrong. Every time I teach my class, I always uh, say, raise a hands. How many of you in high school or college learned that science is a thing that has a method that you ask a hypothesis, you make a prediction, you go do an experiment to test the prediction. And if the prediction is incorrect, you modify your hypothesis and so on and so forth. And every hand goes up every time. And that is a very reasonable framework to understand scientific arguments after the fact. But in many cases, not all cases, in many cases, that is not how it's done. And then when students get into the laboratory, they have this moment of crisis oh my gosh, my project's horrible, my mentor's confused, this is terrible, this isn't how it's supposed to be, it's not linear and progressive and all that kind of stuff. And you have to sit them down and say, this is okay, you're going to be okay, this is how it normally works. And it's a shock to them, right? So there's also that component of looking it in the eye for what it is. That doesn't really affect the validity of scientific claims, but it does address how science is and then arguably should be practiced. Yeah, that's interesting what you just said there about how the scientific method as it's explained to us when we're younger, like in K through 12, um, is it's most likely not going to work like that for whatever field of science that they end up in. And it just kind of makes me laugh a little bit because I think as humans, we create these wonderful ideas on paper. And then mm -hmm. when you actually go to implement them, uh, we just, it just doesn't work out that way. Yeah. It's just well, like, there's this disconnect between theory and experiment and, uh, you know, it's not just science. I mean, there's so many different aspects, no. you know, <laughs> that where, where it's that way where you write something out, it looks great on paper. And then in practice, because you have all of these complexities coming into play that you can't actually uh, model out on your, um, when you're doing the theoretical portion of it. And then it's just, it's just remarkably complex and it doesn't work out the way that you uh, think it should. Mm. <laughs> so, but anyway, okay. So, 
I am okay. I'm I'm really curious. You said that your students really enjoy this course that you were teaching on the philosophy of science and. Well, I'm, I probably I'm, have an uh, observation bias because maybe the ones who hate it don't come and tell me. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I do get at least some positive feedback. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for being honest. <laughs> um, but I, I'm just curious if your students, like years down the road, if they if you, they gave you feedback or if you stayed in touch at all, if they fully appreciate how important that class is that they took like maybe if it made them a better scientist or um, made them uh, better in some way uh, to make better decisions throughout their life. I don't know, have you had any sort of feedback like that, like later on saying, okay, so, hey, hey, like looking, looking at me taking this course, comparing myself to other scientists and how they approach things that, you know, it was very beneficial. Yeah, I've had some feedback um, and some of it has been uh, very gratifyingly positive that way. But it's funny, usually the narrative is more like, I'm really glad I took your course. I didn't really understand, not really, what you were talking about at the time. But when I carried those concepts with me moving forward, I, I could see emerging what you were talking about. You know, it's, it's very hard to talk about something this complex in the abstract in a classroom. Um, but yeah, I think it has, uh, I think it has had an effect on people. And, and the book, um, I, probably the, the nicest thing that happened to me is I got some correspondence from um, a high school in South Korea dedicated exclusively to the study of science where they were using my book in their curriculum. And the students had questions about it. And um, they started, you know, we had a, a dialogue back and forth. And so things like that have happened that uh, have, have really made me feel uh, good about it. But again, this is a, it's a, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a nuanced topic and it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of mental energy to try to untwist what scientists do. And it's probably not possible to step outside of the thing entirely and see it. But I think we really need to at least try because there's an awful lot of, you know, cool stuff that's very counterintuitive. What shocks me is that most, well, I, I shouldn't say most scientists, that's unfair because I hang out with biologists, but most biologists <laughs> I talk to uh, would say, yes, yes, you can never prove a hypothesis. I know that, right? You, you can always gain more and more evidence to support it, but you can never prove it because we can't observe tomorrow, et cetera. But you can disprove a hypothesis, right? So this is a quote from Einstein. It's a misquote, um, which is that no amount of evidence can ever prove me right, but a single experiment can prove me wrong. But um, Pyridum and, and Quine demonstrated clearly and elegantly that no hypothesis can ever be disproven. And no hypo there's no amount of evidence that can ever reject a hypothesis unless you hold the rest of the universe constant, which you know we have no, no ability to do. So it's a web of belief construct and it's a dance that when something is incoherent, when something doesn't work or doesn't make sense, your hypothesis may be wrong, your observation might be in error, your reasoning between the two may be incorrect, and one of your background assumptions might be wrong. And you can't tell, all you can tell is that something's wrong. You can't tell which part of the equation is wrong. And what's really illuminating is that in my view, essentially all humans think this way. I don't, whatever your area of study is, uh, even, you know, even you know, in the sciences, in the pseudosciences, in religion and history and law, humans think this way, but the rules of navigating the web, what you're allowed to change and why to recover coherence are different. 
So this idea that science is this fundamentally different thing, yes, it is. And the differences are substantial, but what causes the differences is nuanced and subtle. And I think that it's problematic. One of the things that I really lose patience with, or get sad about, I should say, you know, is the narrative that, well, people who don't accept science are just irrational or misguided. And if only they understood, you know, logic and critical thinking skills, obviously they'd agree with us because our logic is so crystal clear and our ideas are so irrefutable that unless you're, you know, kind of an idiot, you'll, you'll see what we see as true. And that is a, that is as, um, uh, kind of offensive as it is inaccurate. You have to, in my view, you have to understand that there are norms of evidence that vary. There are types of thinking uh, that varies. Now, now science, there is data on science. I mean, if you look at the technological progress that science has made, you know, decade after decade, century after century uh, in technology, if not an understanding, I think we have to admit that if anything is going to work with regards to the natural phenomenon, science is going to work. And other areas that claim to understand um, natural phenomenon that are often labeled pseudoscience or outside of that tent are, are fundamentally problematic in the claims that they make. But it's because it's not because there's anything defective. Um, it, it doesn't work, but there's nothing dumb about it. It's because that these individuals are drinking from a well of human cognitive tendencies that scientists are trained to ignore or even unlearn, right? So a large amount of scientific training is to unlearn millions of years of evolution <laughs> and to do things that just don't feel right. Uh, so, but I think that defining the landscape of this, these are the different flavors that humans think in, and these are the effects that they have. And here's where they're useful as a much healthier narrative. No, I, I agree with everything you just said there. And in particular, what I really loved about it is how you framed it as um, you shouldn't really be name calling these individuals. You shouldn't be looking at them as if they're like stupid people. A lot of these people are very smart and they've just convinced Incredibly themselves. Incredibly smart. Yeah, they're very, very smart. And they put together these brilliant arguments, um, which take a very long time to sift through and whatnot. But, and they convince a lot of people uh, that the arguments that they put together are, are correct, but on careful analysis, um, they usually break down. I would say, well, I mean, if it falls outside of science, then it's definitely going to break down at some point. And, you know, these conversations that need to be had, if we're ever going to change anyone's mind, you can't start off by calling name calling or thinking the other person is stupid. Um, so yeah, I definitely agree with that. And more conversations need to be had. I mean, um, part of the issues that we're having with society right now are that people are you know, stuck in their filter bubbles and they're just not having conversations with people that they don't agree with. And there's name calling and all sorts of nasty diatribes that people throw back and forth at each other. Uh, social media is an absolute mess. Uh, maybe, we'll get, maybe we'll get into that a little bit later, but yeah, social media is just a mess. I've talked ad nauseum on this uh, on the show about uh, what social media has done to the social fabric of society. Mm. But anyway, uh, I digress here. And I am really interested. So I guess we could move on here. So philosophy of science, you wrote your, uh, you created this course, and then you ended up writing this book, what science is and how it really works. And at some point, you decided that you want to write it another book. Um, so we have partial truths. Um, and then 
I'm just curious as to what was the segue from the first book to the second book? Why did you decide that you like, hey, I need to write this book? Why was it so important to you? Well, um, one, you know, one of parts of uh, philosophy of science and thinking about science and, and the practice of science, actually more cognitive psychology of science, is that humans tend to make certain, have certain thinking patterns, right, that can be very advantageous, but lead to errors in certain circumstances. And most people have heard of, you know, in the field of heuristics and cognitive psychology and, you know, behavioral economics and whatnot, that there are these thought traps that people fall into. And part of science is learning what those thought traps are and how to how to avoid them. And it influences the types of evidence that we collect and, and value above other types of evidence. But uh, in studying that, I saw, or at least I perceived a pattern emerging that a lot of the errors that are made fit the form uh, that, uh, of a fraction. Now, I, I want to be very careful here because um, I am not saying that the human mind is a little calculator and there's fractions inside your neurons and that's how we come up with ideas. That's not what I'm saying. But, you know, mathematics is a language uh, for describing the nat- natural world. It's a very special language with very special properties. But a fraction is just a symbolic representation of a common, you know, notion that we would use in English, we'd say a half, right? You know, one over two. And so there's a pattern that emerges when you when you think of a fraction simply as um, a comment on if you have a population of things, how many of those things have a certain property. Now, I mean, fractions are more complicated than that, but that's a common use of a fraction. And when I looked at the types of cognitive errors that, that humans uh, tend to make, a lot of them fit that form because it has to do with um, filtering the world in a certain way that perverts uh, how you are perceiving all the available information out there. And when I thought about this more deeply, I saw that this you know, manifests itself in all these other areas besides science, to be sure. And so if you're, you know, if you're talking about um, how the human mind works, you're talking about whatever humans think about, you know, which, is, which is everything. And so I decided that I wanted to have a crack at uh, investigating the manifestation of these types of cognitive biases in different areas of, um, of human interaction. And also um, to kind of reflect upon more recent progress in understanding why maybe we have these biases and how they are neither all good nor all bad, but what benefits there are to them. And so, you know, the book the book defines uh, the biases up front and talks about uh, why you can understand them using um, you know fractions just as a lens. And then launches into all the different areas of life that this might manifest in. And I thought, given the um, given the struggles that you've alluded to, right, that our society is having around the inability of different areas to um, meaningfully communicate with each other, uh, you know, it's a very ambitious hope <laughs> um, to the extent that anyone reads it. But I hope that uh, that what's in there might be meaningful in people to people and try and understand. Uh, how we think about different things. Yeah, and uh, I also thought uh, it was really interesting what you said there about how you were, you know, people often think in fractions. That that had that notion had never occurred to me uh, until I read uh, through your book, mm-hmm. and I, I just uh, I kind of like a light bulb went off, and I was like, oh yeah, hmm. I kind of I do that. Thank you. Well, most <laughs> people kind of do that. Yeah. Yeah. I just I just never thought about it that way. I suppose. But we do it, I think we almost do it subconsciously um, yes. because, yeah, we just, 
know, you learn mathematics very young. It's almost intuitive, like in our society these days. And you kind of, you just run these three, uh, run, run these processes subconsciously. But then yes, when you break them down and really analyze them, a number of, a number of these things that you're doing every day really could be broken down to uh, proportionalities. Um, mm-hmm. You're doing statistics, uh, things yeah. like that. Just, yeah. uh, I think you're doing a little bit more with the gut than you are actually pencil and paper, <laughs> but yeah, but you're doing statistics uh, in your head. Uh, but anyway, you know, talking about, you, you know, you talked about like human tendencies, human biases here presented in the book. One of them that I really wanted to talk about is anecdotes because there was an entire chapter devoted to that right at the beginning about how humans disproportionately rely on anecdotal evidence. And uh, yeah, I'm just curious if we could talk about that and like how it gets people in trouble because you know, we were talking earlier about pseudoscience and I have a background and actually this is something that we didn't talk about before we began today's show is for a while I uh, entertained some pseudoscientific beliefs such as the vaccines potentially could be dangerous for you and that genetically modified foods uh, maybe um, may have some hazards associated with them. And that was because I had a parent who was in the complementary and alternative medical uh, field. And so I got, yeah, I got heavily influenced by that. And I was like, oh, okay. Some of this kind of makes sense. So, you know, I was talking about earlier, there's very smart people that uh, who have kind of whipped themselves into these belief systems. I, uh, I like to think of myself as a, a little bit above average intelligence, and I kind of entertain some of these things uh, for a little bit. And some of the arguments that I was telling myself were, uh, were definitely well thought out and crafted, but ultimately, kind of when I learned more about science and dug deeper into the logic and things like that, um, they, uh, they ended up falling down and they didn't, they didn't hold up, so to speak. But anyway, mm-hmm. anecdotes. Let's uh, let's dig in. Why are they why are they so so why are they so problematic, and why do humans have a tendency to disproportionately rely on anecdotes and uh, for evidence? Well, the second question you asked, why do we have this tendency, is an evolutionary question. Um, uh, and I, you know, I most speculation is that we did not evolve, right? So most of our history, we were wandering around as small nomadic groups of hunter gatherers. We never would have encountered population-based data. We never would have encountered analysis, juxtaposition of groups and statistics and whatnot. We had a, a small tribe and people would come and say, oh, over the hill, you know, I saw some bison over there. And we wouldn't say, really? Okay, everybody go to a different hill. How many of you have bison? What's the statistical likelihood you'd see one by chance alone? Are there really bisons over there? Let's calculate a p-value, eh, 0.06. We don't believe they're bisons. Uh, we would say, oh, great, bisons. And we'd go, we'd go try and you know, hunt them. And if there happened to not be there, we'd say, well, they ran away. Uh, and so we're storytelling animals and we have a kind of a limited access to our own personal experience and what other people, what, what people we communicate with uh, tell us. Uh, but it's very important to note that that is evidence. Anecdotal evidence is evidence. Uh, and, and sometimes anecdotal evidence is the vanguard of things that, that science later comes along and says, wow, yeah, thank goodness someone noticed that now that we've, we've validated that that's really going on. But anecdotal evidence uh, is problematic because it's just a small part of the broader picture and it's susceptible to all manner of error. So I want to, because you brought up the vaccine issue, I want to use that as a, as a, as a descriptor, if I may. The people who, I'm going to focus on the, the, the measles, MMR vaccine and autism, um, because it's been such a hot topic prior to the pandemic. And, you know, a lot of people have believed or do believe 
that the MMR measles vaccine causes autism. And I'd like to say that um, this is going to sound a little bit weird and I'll clarify in a second that a lot of people who believe it, believe it because they have actually observed it. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, if you look at the natural history of autism um, as a disease or as, as an as a illness, it doesn't usually manifest till around two years of life. And so someone who has a baby who ultimately develops autism um, will have normal developmental milestones until around two years of age. And then they'll start to manifest symptoms of autism or characteristics of being on the spectrum or even sometimes regressing. Now, I want to clarify, maybe autism shouldn't be defined as a disease. It's a form of human cognitive development, which has particular characteristics because some mildly autistic people are geniuses, you know, just brilliant. Um, but this is what parents experience, that it's normal until two years and then the kids have these manifestations of autism. Now, most MMR vaccines, according to the guidelines of uh, um, professional pediatric associations, are given around 15 to 18 months of age, right? So we're in a, um, a society that usually mandates vaccines for going to school. Most kids get vaccinated. And what that means is that essentially every parent whose kid develops autistic symptoms had a normal, healthy child, then they got an MMR vaccine, and then they manifested autism. It's, it's, it's confounded in time, right? Basic, basically because these things always happen at the same time. And what that means is that you can guarantee that for every kid who gets autism, they were fine. And then they got the measles vaccine and then this happened. And to a parent looking at their own child or talking to their friend that has a child, they observed it. Now we would recognize that as what's called a post hoc ergoprocter hoc problem, just because one thing comes before another doesn't mean it causes it, right? Mm -hmm. It would be very reasonable for me to conclude that gray hair causes heart disease. And if I wanted to help people out there, I'd make sure we all dyed our hair, right? So we didn't get heart disease because they're confounded in time. And that's, but these are, this is anecdotal evidence. And this is where people who would deny, who, who would say vaccines cause autism stop because this is the type of evidence humans are accustomed to and resonates with us. But that's not the right question, right? The question is not, do kids who get measles vaccines get autism? Clearly some do. The question is, do kids that get measles vaccines get autism more frequently than kids who don't get a measles vaccine? And that's where um, you know, a more scientific evaluation comes because again, on the theme we've been talking about fractions, if the evidence is, is the stuff on the top of the fraction, the numerator, and you ignore the denominator, if you only pay attention to the kids who get autism and don't talk about the rate or the frequency, you're kind of lost. And multiple, numerous studies have come out now juxtaposing kids that get measles vaccine versus those who don't, or those who get the measles vaccine with thimerosal versus those who don't, or societies before and after the measles vaccine, uh, and looking at the rates of autism, and the rates of autism don't go up with the measles vaccine. They just, they just don't. And so a scientist then would say, well, that's, yes, we saw this happen. Yes, we perceived it. Yeah, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, but this, this statistical data now trumps that. We were fooled. We, we saw a trend and it turned out not to actually be the case. But people who are not um, receptive to that kind of statistical evidence will stick with the anecdotal evidence and to the, you know, forever. Because it'll be, there's no convincing them because it, it's how you, it's what type of evidence you value. What, what carries more weight. And by the way, the scientists are very, you know, open to anecdotal evidence too. And trained professionals generally prefer anecdotal evidence to statistical evidence because it resonates with us naturally. But part of our training is 
to understand this problem and to focus on statistical evidence. Yeah, I think that's really important to highlight like a number of things that you said there. Like first off, the beginning of the scientific method or the scientific endeavor is really an interesting observation. And then you explore it further. Yeah. I mean, like that is like the crux of what science is. So to dismiss anecdotes um, completely is, uh, is kind of ridiculous. It is important at the same time though, for everyone to admit that it is the, like the weakest form of evidence you could possibly come up with because we have many more powerful forms of evidence these days. Uh, but then number two, that people naturally gravitate towards it. I mean, you know, you're talking about, you know, thousands of years of evolution here. And like, that was basically all that we had was uh, we're very visual animals and to observe the environment around us. And we didn't have these scientific methods or these uh, more advanced statistical techniques to kind of crunch the numbers and really um, dig down and refine our understanding of the world around us. So we relied on anecdotes and we told these anecdotes through stories. We're, we're great storytellers, as you, as you mentioned, and uh, it's just, it's very powerful and it resonates with us. Uh, and I'm of course guilty of this as well. And I think, you know, most people who are listening to this are, are guilty of weighing the anecdotes more than we, pro than we probably should. And the other, go ahead. I'm sorry, thank you. Uh, one of the points I wanna make is that, that science, if you wanted to characterize science as a approach to things, you could characterize it as it, it is an approach to mitigate or, or maybe if you're really lucky, eliminate errors. And the more we learn about more types of errors, scientific methodology evolves new approaches to handle those errors. So, you know, Joseph Priestley, um, who is credited with discovering oxygen along with Lavoisier, although Priestley never thought he discovered oxygen, he thought he discovered a way to make deflogisticated error, but maybe that's a conversation for a different day. <laughs> um, if you read his paper from the 1640s, right? Uh, he had a couple of mice that he was exposing to this, this special air he made and a flame that he exposed to it. Uh, but there were, there were only two mice and there were a couple of times he stuck a flame in a jar and he published this paper, which is arguably one of the most seminal works, right? Ever, ever accomplished in chemistry. Now, if you went back in time to talk to Dr. Priestley and you said to him, well, yeah, this is a really cool anecdotal observation, which it was, right? This is really kind of cool, but how many animals did you test under, under, with and without your special gas? And did you then do, did you try to figure out if it was a type one error and do some kind of, you know, uh, T test to figure out what the odds are that it was just a mistake that these happen to be special mice? That would be completely unintelligible to him. He would have no frame of reference for understanding what you were talking about because statistics theory, probability theory hadn't really emerged even at that point, let alone, you know, being developed. And so um, I think it's a mistake to say that, that you know, this defines science unless you're gonna say that the discovery of oxygen was not science, but that the methods of science evolve over time to handle more and more errors as we become aware of them. And, I have, you know, and as new technologies are invented, like you know, big data platforms and omics platforms, we're creating new errors as we go and, and creating new methods to solve them. But importantly to your point, none of this is natural. None of this is what we evolved around. None of this is what we're accustomed to. Evolution moves at a glacial pace compared to technology, right? I mean, it, it takes millennia for our biology to change by natural selection. It takes a couple of years for us to explode the world uh, philosophically with technology. And so um, really we're just struggling to keep up. And that's what part of the, the scientific education is, is kind of span that gap. 
Yeah, and uh, what you said there about you know looking at the what uh, what was done with the oxygen studies, and obviously that was science during its time. But looking back on it now, we would you know we just kind of like throw our hands up and be like, "What were you doing?" Yeah. Uh, but the only reason we know that is because we kept advancing, you know, moving the technology along, which is advancing at an incredibly rapid rate, as you said, compared to human evolution. Uh, but and it was like newer and better science. So a lot of people will use the argument, well, you know, science has been wrong in the past. Well, I mean, the methodologies were poor and we've refined our understanding, but science wasn't, I mean, wasn't necessarily like completely wrong. And the only reason we know that is because we have newer science uh, that told us that the science, uh... go ahead. Can I unpack that a bit? So this is a, yeah, this is yeah, a no, super absolutely. important distinction. So first of all, science has been wrong in the past. And by the way, science will be wrong in the future. Um, if you had an instrument that worked much of the time, maybe even most of the time, but sometimes failed, and you could use that versus random guessing, you know, which would you prefer? But this distinction about science being a wrong, yes, about its explanations, but not about phenomena, right? So, so Priestley thought he had discovered deflogisticated air. Now we can giggle at him and say, oh, you silly man, you were wrong. You, that was oxygen that you were studying. But it, it still you know, makes flames glow like crazy. So uh, our explanations of why uh, our, our advances work uh, or we can predict things change. If you look at the um, 1900s, uh, for example, or, or even before that, look in the 1700s, 1800s, massive technological explosion, right? Unbelievable gain in the ability of humans to predict and control nature. But by our best understanding, all of the theories in those centuries were wrong, all of them. Yet we made these incredible advancements. So science is wrong in its explanations, but science is not that often wrong in what it's learning about, about natural phenomenon. And I think that's an essential uh, distinction that, that people tend to, to mix together erroneously. The other story I wanted to tell you, maybe you know this already, is just to show how powerful um, anecdotal and kind of, you know, kind of correlative uh, thinking is, is that R.A. Fisher, who was one of the pioneers of statistics, right? He came up with, well, Fisher's t-test, if you've heard of it. He basically came up with a concept of p-values. He came up with the concept of sometimes things happen by chance alone, and we can quantify how, how often that is. He wrote a number of articles stating very strongly that cancer causes smoking. That, that was his view. Cancer that causes smoking? Cancer causes smoking, that, that people okay. who have cancer uh, tend to smoke. Um, okay. And his view of this was that cancer is a, an inflammatory disease that probably begins before you become aware of, of, of the lump or whatever. It causes inflammation, it makes you uneasy, and it, 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 it um, compels people to engage in self-soothing behaviors, so they go out and start smoking. He thought that, that the association of smoking and cancer was a mistake. Uh, it was just a correlation that, you know, do you understand? So, so when you see that people who have cancer tend to smoke, you can't distinguish, not logically, which caused which. All you can tell is that they go together. And he held firm to this, even when large amounts of statistically important information came out to show the opposite. So I think that um, as, as trained as science might be, as scientists might be, all of us have a version of the human brain in our head. And all of us are susceptible to these types of problems. And one of the very special things about science, which, which you know all too well, uh, to me, one of the crown jewels of science is the peer review system where 
if one scientist goes off, you know, off into oops land, everyone else is going <laughs> to correct is going to correct him or her pretty quickly. And, and, and that is very important. You don't, you don't see that in other areas. And I'm not trying to, to pick on um, alternative or new age beliefs, but you know, if, if one person says, I think crystals work this way, um, you don't see people who, who look at uh, manipulating chakras running tests to disprove that crystal theory. But scientists, um, we all criticize each other and, and that's part of the metric, right? So individual scientists, even the best scientists have this capacity to just go off in, into these observational errors. And actually, that's a good thing. There's a large argument in the book. That's a good thing. We need that to some extent, not too much. <laughs> yeah, I, do, I definitely do remember reading that portion of your book where you were talking about how humans evolved to not be by themselves. Well, of course, we're, we're gregarious and we, we evolved in troops and things like that, or groups. And how we we need this debate, how it's uh, like fundamental. I think you were talking about confirmation bias, was it? Yes. Um, and then, yeah, and then you were talking about how, well, we clearly evolved confirmation bias, so why is this a good thing? And then you were going on to, you expounded about how um, the, you know, being with groups that you don't agree with, that this, um, I don't know, you probably explain it better than I could. I, I don't recall all of the specifics, but that's really, um, I found it fascinating. Perhaps we could talk about that for a little bit. Well, I mean, confirmation bias is this humiliating, embarrassing bias that humans have that whatever, when we believe something, we then filter experience preferentially to support what we already believe. So it's not that seeing is believing, but believing is seeing. I mean, to some extent, not completely. I mean, we're not going to completely change the world to support a belief that, that is obviously wrong. But we do this and it attaches to any belief. It, it's not just beliefs that benefit you. These are not just motivated reasonings. Whatever you believe, you will view the world in a way that kind of confirms that belief and you'll, you'll ignore, to some extent, disconfirming evidence. And if there's any bias that has been high, you know, as reproducible as possible and manifest in multiple areas, this is it. And we could, there's so many famous examples and they're all, they're all quite horrible. <laughs> um, and they could probably explain in large part what we're experiencing today. So one of the studies I talk about is where they took a, a group of, of students, uh, two groups that had different views on the death penalty. Is it a, a deterrent um, for murder or not? And um, they sat them down and they exposed them to some published studies uh, of the effects. And given the same data, the same information, both groups became more strongly convinced of their views, right? So, you know, we have a Supreme Court in this country, nine incredibly intelligent, incredibly well-educated, rational people, all looking at the same case, all looking at the same briefs, all looking at the same world, coming to widely different conclusions. Um, unless you're going to uh, have a sinister view that they're just, you know, agenda-driven agenda lackeys, we have to assume that they're processing the world differently, and almost certainly because their background experience is different. But it's, a, it's an interesting question. Why would, why would we evolve this? That seems weird, right? Why would you evolve something that just makes you hold on to beliefs regardless of what they are? And the argument that's been put forth from multiple sectors, so it comes from um, the inter interactionist uh, model of human reasoning, and also from um, epistemic network modeling, and also studies in the, in the business world uh, around efficiency, is that if we didn't have confirmation bias, we would believe nothing. Now, why do I say this? If there's any philosopher that's known to scientists, it's probably Karl Popper. 
And Karl Popper famously wrote, right, and said that uh, when you, 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 you can't prove anything, this is kind of like my quote from Einstein earlier, but you can disprove it. So when you find evidence that disproves a theory, you have to reject the theory because that's logically deducible. Um, but there's always some disconfirming evidence for any theory. You're always going to encounter something in, in your experience. It may even be a, a mistake, right? It may even be like a, a weird just anomaly that goes against what your theory predicts. If we tossed out our theories whenever we encountered any kind of disconfirming evidence, we would just be quivering balls of gray matter. We, we wouldn't believe anything. And so the argument is, is that confirmation bias is there so that we stick to our guns long enough that we're not fooled by, by accidental evidence that might disprove something. And when you're having a group reason debate, um, you need to stick to your guns long enough to, to vet out the arguments and, and the reasoning. And so the two bits of evidence, the, the, the experimental evidence that I would call on here is that there are a number of logical tasks that humans fail as, you know, on average on their, on their own. But when you let them reason through them together, they succeed fantastically. And there was this wonderful study um, done by um, uh, where they, they took uh, professional scientists and gave them kind of a simulated research experiment and then instructed them to act in ways that would kind of diminish their confirmation bias. You can't ever really get rid of it. And when they did that, the scientists stopped making forward progress. They, they just stopped. And the reason was is that as soon as a new hypothesis came into their head, they could always think of something that went against it. Right? So they immediately discounted even correct ideas before they had time to vet them out. So confirmation bias is a horrible thing. It probably leads to all kinds of polarization and animus and war. Um, but if you got rid of it, I don't think we'd be able to make any forward progress. We probably couldn't even navigate the world. So like most things we've evolved, it's very helpful in some settings and can be damaging in others. So if we were to get rid of confirmation bias, we would become so risk adverse that we wouldn't we wouldn't take any sort of risk um, to push forward like human knowledge or not just risk averse i think yeah. i think belief devoid right so i yeah. i'm married i love my wife we have a great relationship but sometimes she gets mad at me <laughs> sometimes she gets mad at me and i don't know why uh, and so if, when she got mad at me, I immediately rejected the hypothesis that she loved me. I immediately rejected the hypothesis. We had a good marriage and I just walked out of the house, right? Hmm. No matter what belief you have, no matter how strong it is, you are always going to encounter evidence that goes against it. And so we need the ability to maintain our beliefs in the light of disconfirming evidence long enough to figure out, is the belief really false? So Charles Darwin, right? Um, when he published on the origin of species, he devoted an entire chapter to the problem of the theory. And after he published it, a number of problems came up that he, he could not reconcile. He could not figure out in his lifetime. He didn't abandon the theory. He just said, yeah, that's a problem with the theory. We need to work through that or, or, or mature the theory. When Galileo um, you know, published his, his work and um, had a regrettable outcome uh, politically, but scientifically, there were three major objections, like, I mean, major um, objections in astronomy to why Galileo could not be right, couldn't be right. And, and he basically just threw his arms up in the air and says, well, I can't explain those. And frankly, I don't have to. Um, so I think that you'll find that, that um, holding on to beliefs despite disconfirming evidence is very important in science as long as there is an instrument to reject a belief once the evidence is evaluated and comes out, you know, 
against the idea. So we, we need our confirmation bias desperately. I, I can give you endless examples of famous ideas that scientists came up with, that at the time there was a lot of disconfirming evidence that ultimately turned out to be true with lowercase t, um, and, and thank goodness that they, they stuck to their guns. That, that having been said, there's been a lot of horrible misguided idiocy by scientists and people have stuck to their guns <laughs> till their graves um, because they had their, their minds were, were taken over by, by confirmation bias. But as I mentioned earlier, the peer review system doesn't, doesn't fall into that because remember, as a scientist, right, I have confirmation bias towards my theories, yes, but that means I have disconfirmation bias towards other people's theories. And as long as we have an open and trusting dialogue, then those things work in concert so that the whole field doesn't go off the deep end. I, I often say, and this is not a joke, it's true, is that you know my best friends in the world, um, outside of my, my immediate family, are people who come to international conferences and try to discredit my ideas in public. <laughs> That's what they do, and I do it to them. And it's not seen as vicious or mean. Actually, it's necessary, it's compulsory. Um, it's part of what we do. Um, but but that's but the, I think confirmation bias plays that that central role in science. It's just that when you find it outside of science, without the the peer review system or a system like peer review, then it goes on unballasted, right? Then it just then it just takes over, and that's that's problematic. So I think what you're saying is like most things in life, you've got to find that balance. <laughs> you know, not too much, <laughs> not too little. <laughs> we uh, we need the confirmation bias, but not too much. We can't and uh, we can't have too little of it. Otherwise, you know, we're not going to uh, kind of push ourselves to um, push ourselves to take the leap mm. to to hold on to something uh, for long enough to figure out that it's wrong or to figure out that it's right. That's right. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And I like what you said there about the uh, the science <laughs> about how your best friends are the people at the conferences, um, you know, outside of your immediate family and things like that, because. You know, it's, it's interesting is, you know, within scientific circles, there is a lot of back and forth between, you know, people trying to say that you're wrong or people, you know, supporting your positions and a lot of communication happens, open dialogue. It's not vicious yeah. at all. And I think, I think society as a whole would be a lot more better if, uh, you know, they, they learned how to communicate uh, like constructive, constructive criticism to one another. Mm -hmm. um, you know, particularly like on social media platforms and things like that, where you, uh, you know, you have people who are essentially, you know, there's clearly too much confirmation bias, not too little, too much confirmation bias going on. And then you have people who are very strongly holding on to their beliefs. And then you just, you see name calling back and forth as, uh, as I had mentioned earlier. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, you know, scientists are people, there's all kinds of scientists, and there are people with personal personality disorders everywhere. But in oh, yeah. general, <laughs> in general, um, the, the problem as I see it, uh, is that in a lot of our areas of our public discourse around different ideas, people are trying to win. And winning to them means convincing the other person that they are wrong, and, and that the person themselves is right. That's not science, not in its, its, in its best form. In science, winning is getting to a correct answer. And sometimes the correct answer is something that neither side is considering, right? The um, wave-particle duality of light. Uh, is the immune system due to proteins or cells? 
the answers to these are both, yes, and it's something we don't fully understand. And then the, the different fields kind of converge onto a new theory. So it's a very different definition of winning. You know, winning is coming to the correct answer, not defeating the opponent. I think that's a critical distinction. Yeah, that's a, a very, very important distinction. I categorically agree with you on that one. And the uh, the whole point of like debate or discourse or dialogue or however you want to describe it um, really is getting to truth. It's not yeah. it's not pubbling the opposition um, in, to the point where they feel bad about themselves or they're you know calling them names, making them feel stupid. It's really uh, both sides should walk away being better people uh, because you've engaged in this. Um, you've helped but each this other. Is so yeah, this is so fundamentally foreign to the way we have disputation in the rest of our uh, society. Uh, we train kids in high school on debate teams. You won, you lost, right? The, the debate never ends with both sides uh, compromising to a middle view or, or 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 someone being convinced. You look at our legal system. Someone goes to jail, uh, or they don't, right? You don't see. You don't see a defense lawyer suddenly pop up and say, you're right, <laughs> my client is guilty. And the client says, yeah, you're right, you convinced me I am guilty. In fact, that would be you know, a dereliction of duty of, of, of the lawyer. Um, so I don't know, um, outside of, of, I think outside of science, we, we train ourselves. There's a winner and a loser. Um, people hate if there's a tie in a hockey game. People hate it. <laughs> they hate it. They want an answer. I want someone to win and someone to lose. So it's a very different kind of mindset. Yeah, that, that is interesting. Yeah, how many aspects of society where you don't actually have that. So perhaps that's why when people do engage in dialogue outside, um, you know, outside of the scientific sphere, you see a lot of this winning and losing where it's just the one, both people are trying to win. And I think what winning means um, for a lot of individuals is basically making the other person look stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I hate to say it like that, but that's what, uh, that's what I've observed quite a, yeah. quite a bit of, but um, anyway, okay. So we've talked a lot of, you know, we talked about confirmation bias using anecdotes as evidence. Let's talk about real world examples here about how distorted thinking can lead to bad decision-making uh, because, you know, we all have to make decisions every day and some decisions are better than others. And we have a variety of different tools at our disposal to, uh, that we can train ourselves with in order to uh, ensure that we're making, or hopefully making better decisions. But let's kind of dig into some of these, uh, these poor decisions um, hmm. from, um, from society. Uh, for example, you have an entire chapter where you talk about um, uh, police killings, uh, systemic racism, thing, uh, things like that. Right. So I, I want to be, I want to take a moment and unpack definitions here because words are clumsy. Language is clumsy. And I think we can fabulate a lot where people kind of equivocate and talk past each other. Sure. Uh, I'm going to define systemic racism right now in our conversation yeah. as people being treated differently under the law based upon their race, or, or I, I should even say being treated differently under the law uh, as a function of their race. I am not going to speak to whether or not the system uh, is, is prejudiced or biased against minorities or intentionally or, or not, or whether it was designed in that way. I'm not saying that is or isn't the case. Uh, I, I have my own views on that, I'm a person, but what, I, what I'd like to define as are people treated differently under the law as a result of their race and I think that most people would agree that if you're treated differently under the laws result of your race, 
then that is institutional bias. Okay, or, or inerrant, that is that is uh, racism is such a, a, a charged term. Very but hard, a lot of yeah. people would deny this. They they would say no. Um, you know, everyone has the same opportunities, and you know, you you do or don't do and whatnot. And obviously, there's very strong feelings. You know, again, in favor of affirmative action. There are those who are against affirmative action, and all these kinds of things. But let's focus on the the policing system. This is what I what I go to um, in the book. And there's two examples I'd like to unpack. The first is, um, you know, our our minorities killed uh, by police officers at a a higher frequency than non-minorities. And this gets into this fraction example. Now, also let me say, I'd like to acknowledge that the vast majority of police officers are good, honorable people who risk their lives every day for relatively little compensation and protect us all, and, and we should be grateful for them. And there are those who egregiously violate and abuse uh, the people that they are hired to police. So when we look at this, we have to say, you know, a lot more Caucasians are killed by police every year than minorities, hands down. But that's just the top of the fraction. When you look at the number of minorities killed as a function of the number of minorities there are, it's, it's much higher, right? It's two, three times higher. And so this is something we have to look in the eye and acknowledge this happens. And if you're killed more frequently, being a minority, whether it's intentional or not, that is a racial disparity across the system. But what, the, what I go into most is the big data policing, right? And the reason that I'm very interested in this is because the arguments, arguments have been made that, well, yes, humans are biased. Yes, humans are racist, whatever. Let's just use computer algorithms. It's a machine. It's, it's ones and zeros in a box. How, how biased could it be? And um, the answer is that regrettably, the way it's being used, terribly biased. And let me explain the example I gave. So there is a a data, so um, police departments are using what are called um, heat maps or heat lists, where if someone gets on a heat list, then they are a a person of suspicion or if an area is on a heat list. And they can actually, these, these algorithms are fairly good at predicting, you know, when and where crime is likely to happen what the characteristics of the victims or the assailants may be, what kind of property is more likely to be stolen. But there's a system in California called the CalGang database. And the CalGang database has a a number of criteria by which you wind up in the database. And so in the United States of America, in order to be arrested, um, there has to be probable cause that uh, you've committed a crime or are carrying contraband. But in order for you to be detained, and even frisked and searched, um, there only has to be reasonable suspicion. Now, I'm sure that jury deliberations have consumed most of their time, right, debating what is reasonable. This is a this is a, a ambiguous term, but it's what a, a reasonable police officer would find suspicious in behavior. Now, the reason I bring this up is that in California, just being on the Cal Gang database makes you reasonably suspicious enough to stop and frisk you. Okay. Well, what are the criteria for being on the database? Well, there's about 10 of them, but one of them is that you, you basically um, are, are seen associating with gang members. And the other is that you frequent areas that have high gang activity. Well, let's say you happen to live in a neighborhood that has a lot of gang activity. You frequent an area with high gang activity because you live there. 
And if you're standing on the corner waiting for the light to turn green next to a gang member, you're seen associating with a gang member. And so what that means is that the system has essentially captured anybody uh, who lives in a, a gang-ridden neighborhood as uh, having a lower Fourth Amendment right than anyone else. And regrettably, for, for other reasons, you know, we could take a lot of time discussing, gang-ridden neighborhoods tend to be lower socioeconomic status and tends to have a disproportionate number of minorities there. And so even without the intention, what we're saying is in this system is that being of a, a minority uh, in that system gives you less Fourth Amendment rights than someone who's not a minority. And if that is not being treated differently under the law, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how you would define it. And so now some people will say, well, yeah, but you know, so what? The cops frisk you. If you're not doing anything wrong, what do you have to worry about? But that's not the point, right? The point is that that people of, of minority people just have less rights under the law as we all, we all cling to. And so this is the argument I was making in the book is that is actually a form, a weird form of confirmation bias because one of the characteristics of confirmation bias is that you go out and examine things that will confirm your hypothesis more than you examine things that won't, that, 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 uh, then, you, then you look for things that won't. So in this case, if you look at our incarceration uh, in America, minorities are disproportionately incarcerated, hands down. Well, we are searching them more frequently. We are investigating minorities more frequently. There are strong data out there that in areas where um, non-minorities have a higher rate of contraband, drugs or, or other things, minorities are arrested more frequently. And that probably is because police officers have always searched and frisked people of minority status more frequently than not. But here it's built into the computer systems. So this is um, the manifestations of one of the biases uh, that I'm talking about because it fits that form. Yeah, and I think um, just to build on a few things that you said there, um, the first being when you're talking about the big data and these systems, you know, a lot of times it's not just with the policing, but we're going to be relying more and more on different aspects of society with the big data as well as the artificial intelligence. And people are like, okay, well, we're going to use this. It's completely unbiased, but like you create rules when, um, when you filter through data, there's yeah. somebody who programs it and um, tells the artificial intelligence or whatever it is that they're programming, it gives it rules and you can, you can put bias into those rules. So people have to be very careful when, you know, we talk about, oh, well, it's going to be great because it's going to be completely unbiased. It's like, somebody really has to rigorously analyze the, the axioms or the foundations for the program as it moves forward. Because if it does, if they, if nobody does that, um, there are going to be biases that are baked into it. And Absolutely. then the whole thing is just biased. And then on the back end of it, it's going to be biased. And, you know, people are gonna be like, oh, well, this is great unbiased data when it's really not, or information totally. when it's really not. Yeah. Totally. And, and even if the yeah. algorithms are, are not biased and I, that we'd have to talk about what that really meant. If the data you put in comes from biased sources, yeah. then the output will also be biased regardless of the algorithm, right? And so um, this is a, the, the comical uh, sad reality is that two of the members on the CalGang database um, are infants. So <laughs> which, which demonstrates the, the, yeah. the absurdities that can come out of this if it's, uh, yeah, if it's applied incorrectly. Yeah, and then another, another thing that I wanted to highlight too is that we were talking about the um, 
with these low income neighborhoods and then the stop and frisk and police interactions. Um, it's well documented that increased interactions between police and the um, and civilians, you know, that's just with increased friction, you're going to have in increased conflict. I mean, it's just a numbers game at that point. So if you have areas where police interact with people more, of course, you're going to have more violence because you have police interacting with the individuals of society more versus other more, let's say, er, um, I don't want to say affluent, but areas where, let's say, people aren't stopping uh, and frisked as often. You're going to have right. decreased interactions with law enforcement. Now, I think we need to be fair here that it yeah. seems reasonable, right, to deploy. So resources are finite. It seems reasonable to deploy our crime fighting resources in areas where there is more crime. I don't, I don't think you can really argue with that. But um, and we can have a debate as a society whether or not the downsides to that, which is this kind of um, unfair treatment based upon your race, is worth the benefit, you know, um, on the crime. In fact, we might actually go so far, and I know it sounds absurd in a democracy, to ask the people who live there <laughs> what, their, what their preferences would be. But what you just said um, is being amplified even further with these technological advancements. So there's a system called the shot spotter system, which I don't know if you've heard about it, but basically cities put um, uh, microphones around neighborhoods that listen all the time. And if they hear a sound that, that sounds like a gunshot, they dispatch the police immediately. And not just that, but they can locate where the shot probably came from. And then the police go there and they just start searching people and, you know, and, and, and looking, for, looking for suspects. Well, unfortunately at this point in time, the uh, hardware is incredibly error prone. Uh, one city estimated that upwards of 80% of the times it said that there was a gunshot, there wasn't, and that its ability to locate where the shots are coming from uh, was extremely poor as well. And as you might imagine, these systems have been preferentially installed in high crime neighborhoods, which for other reasons tend to be disproportionately of, uh, um, inhabited by, by minorities. Right. And so it, it, it's just another manifestation of exactly what you were talking about. We have increased investigation, scrutiny, capricious searching of people that, that based upon their their race. And, um, you know, again, it, it, we should I think we should have an open debate as a society about whether the costs and benefits of that is, 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 is worth it and, and who we want to be. Um, but I, I'm, it, we shouldn't deny that it's happening because these are just what the data are. Yeah, that's, that's very, very alarming. I have not heard of that. And to, I mean, the percentages, 80% um, of the time, it's incorrect. I mean, that is, I can't even believe that th something like that is being, uh, has been deployed and, and is being used because I could just see all sorts of problems with that because you're sending, you're sending law enforcement in when they're going in prime with the idea that the suspect has a gun right. and the suspect's probably not even in that area. And I don't even know what the response time is, uh, but you said it's, it's wrong 80% of the time, you know, people move around. They could be in a car shooting. Yeah. That just, that, there's, that sounds like a disaster. Oh, wrong that there's wrong that there's even been a gunshot fired. Oh, I see. Okay. Door, door, I mean, localization wrong also, but doors being yeah. slammed, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so they're deploying and they're basically searching 
people. What's very troubling um, is it has been reported by the Washington Post that the company that makes this technology reported it as being very highly accurate, like in the 90 percentile accurate. Um, and that that assessment came from the marketing department of the company, not from any kind of technology development or investigation. So as these advanced technologies become more and more um, available, there's this greater and greater danger of these types of biases being just, just baked into the system, as you said, under the auspices of being a, a remedy, right, to human, to human bias. Yeah, that's, uh, that's unfortunate. Clearly a lot more work has to be done here because yeah, yeah that just doesn't sound like a, a good idea um, as of right now. But anyway, I wanted to, uh, you know, we've talked about kind of the, the, you know, philosophy of science and all the great things that science has done. We've touched a little bit on the, you know, science being an imperfect endeavor. Let's, uh, let's talk more about where science, uh, where science gets it wrong. And, uh, you know, the, different things that scientists have convinced themselves, like tools uh, that we've convinced ourselves of, and, or metrics, I should say, and they end up being the, um, you know, being falling victim to, I think it's called Goodwin's Law, where, you know, the, uh, the metric that you develop actually becomes the goal versus the, <laughs> the bigger picture. Yeah. <laughs> and in particular, I'm talking about p-hacking, of course, but um, yeah, so. So I'm, again, in part because of my background, I'm, I'm going to focus much more on the biological sciences, uh, molecular biological sciences than, than other areas. Um, P-hacking, data dredging, data mining. Um, what we're talking about here for, for people who are not familiar is that if, uh, if a scientist thinks that they see an effect, right? And, and usually this has to do with, I'm, I'm testing a hypothesis, so I have an intervention and I look at one group versus another group. I'm testing for drug works, I'm testing if knocking out a gene changes something, uh, but this can, this can be applied to any kind of nature, right? One of the ways to tell if A causes B is you remove A and see if B still happens. So um, just by chance alone, you're gonna see differences when there aren't any actually there you know, in, in reality. And, and by that, I mean, as an example, we may be testing a drug on a disease uh, population and uh, we randomize the patients into two groups. One gets the drug being tested, one gets a placebo. And you may see that the, the patients in the drug group do better, but the disease is variable. All diseases are variable. Some people are gonna do better and some people are gonna do worse just by chance alone. So what are the odds that the difference you're seeing is because people who are going to do better anyway wound up in the drug group as opposed to the drug actually having an effect? And that's where you know statistics can quantify that level of uncertainty. Can't get rid of it, but it can tell you. And right now, more or less, uh, the gold standard is what's called a p-value of 0.05. There's a lot of debate about whether that's appropriate. There is debate about whether p-value should be used at all, but this is what the current um, practice is. And what a p-value of 0.05 means, if correctly calculated, is that there's a one in 20 chance that you've made a mistake but 19 out of 20 times, it's a real thing. And, you know, sometimes that causes people to scratch their heads. Well, why one in 20? Why not one in a hundred? Why, why don't we make the study so it's a one in a hundred chance of a mistake or one in a thousand chance of a mistake? I'd like there to be fewer mistakes, wouldn't you? And, and the answer is because it, it, resources are finite. And um, to get that better and better statistical power, you have to have larger and larger studies. And there's also ethics involved, right? In, in having humans consent to trials, 
and 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 also other types of experimentation. And this this manifests, you know, in pretty much all parts of science um, when you're when you're doing any kind of comparisons such as these. So, um, where's the problem with that? Well, the problem is is that there is what's happening today in the biological um, arena is what's been called the reproducibility crisis, which. I don't like that name because I don't think it's a crisis. I think this problem has been with us forever. Um, but I think we're, we're beginning to recognize that a lot of times things that are given a low p-value, which would indicate that there's a small chance that it's a mistake, that it's real, actually um, are very likely to be errors. And there's a couple of, of things that may be causing this. One is that um, individual scientists may be um, modifying their experiments unbeknownst to themselves in a way that um, makes the p-value calculation not meaningful. So if you do a, a simulated uh, trial where you're allowed to change what are called degrees of freedom, where based upon the results of your experiment, you can make the sample size bigger or smaller, you can kind of keep going with the experiment or stop, you can focus on one sex versus another if you're, if you're studying in humans or animals, what you're basically doing is expanding the denominator of the fraction so your your power drops and so when you do that and you use a test that is not designed to handle that um now the error rate instead of being five percent goes up to over 60 percent and a lot of the basic studies that are done are, are really not controlled in that kind of way because let's let's face it there is intuition in science right there is Sometimes you have to throw out a data point and you have a very good reason for doing so. Sometimes not a good reason for doing so. Um, and then another, now, I'm, by the way, I am setting aside individuals who may purposefully manipulate data um, in order to lie. This does occur, um, I believe quite infrequently, uh, but that's not what we're talking about here. Here we're talking about innocent errors uh, around not understanding um, the methodologies. But something more systemic uh, that people have noted is what is called the, the publication bias and the file drawer effect. And again, let me define my terms because publication bias means that there's a bias towards publishing positive data, meaning a, a new finding versus nothing's there finding. Um, and the file drawer effect refers to the fact that sometimes knowing about the publication bias, sometimes when people find that there's nothing there with their testing, they never even submit the paper for publication. They, toss it in their file drawer. Now, these terms have also often also been used for drug development in industry where um, they are purposefully not publishing negative findings or purposely not submitting negative findings because they don't want to hurt their product. That is an intentional, um, kind of disingenuous, malicious act. That's not what I'm referring to. So let's say that there are 20 scientists around the world all testing the same hypothesis. And let's say that they all do a p-value determination uh, of 0 0.05. Well, if there's 20 people doing the same experiment and there's nothing there, right? There's nothing to find. One out of 20 will get a positive result with a p-value of less than 0 0.05. It's actually a little bit more complex than that, but just for the simplicity of math, that's more or less what'll happen. If that individual submits their paper for publication because it has a low p-value and the other 19 scientists never submitted for publication, or if they do submit it, it comes out in an obscure journal that nobody reads, then the view from the field is, wow, this is a really significant finding. When in actuality, you're setting up the system to report chance effects, and then people come along and try to reproduce the finding and it, it you know, doesn't reproduce, et cetera. So there are systemic problems around um, 
publication bias, the file drawer effect, um, people manipulating experiments without understanding that now they are running the wrong statistical test and therefore the, the value isn't meaningful, uh, that uh, kind of is plaguing science at some level. How serious the problem is, we, we don't know for sure, but it is there. And, and I think that um, there are specific measures that could be taken to remedy these problems, and they probably won't be taken for a number of, of cultural and societal, scientific societal issues. But I think we very, really need to be mindful of them and pay a lot of attention to them. Yeah, these, as you said, these are, are clearly serious issues and science is not an, a perfect endeavor, but we've recognized them. People, people have recognized them and we need to do something about it. Something, yeah. something yeah, absolutely do. should be done because the quality of the scientific results are not where they could be. And, you know, obviously, you know, there are governmental decisions. There are big decisions in general being made on certain um, scientific foundations. And if the primary study or studies uh, are not reproducible or they're flawed in some capacity, but they still, you know, but they still got published and they're still trusted, um, that's a serious problem. Yeah, even more serious, even more so because of the systemic nature of publication by that extremely talented, honest scientists can carry out studies with perfect methodologies and we still have this problem because you are, you are, there's a filtering effect mm -hmm. on, again, what's on the numerator versus what's on the denominator. You're seeing only the positive findings without the context of the negative findings studying the same thing. And so the frequency of this thing happening is exaggerated. And so there are remedies to this. We could modify uh, publishing practices. We could modify promotion and tenure practices. We could change how funding of science is done uh, to control for this. And I'm hoping that we will. As I mentioned earlier, at least in my view, the history of scientific methodology is that it evolves over time as we become aware of new errors that we previously didn't know. Hopefully this will be handled, but it has certainly gotten a lot of attention recently. And I think we need to keep our, uh, remain vigilant about trying to remedy it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, it's, it's been an absolutely uh, wonderful conversation, James. Um, and the, one of the last things that I kind of wanted to wrap today's, uh, today's episode up with is, and we talked about a variety of, uh, of things you've you know, talked about your first book, with the uh, what science is and how it really works, as well as the partial truths, most recent book, and you know, critical thinking in general, I, should, I suppose. Um, that's, I think, the first time that we've more or less used that word, but that's kind of what we're talking <laughs> about, is uh, like kind of in a nutshell, what, you know, just thinking better, making better decisions, and uh, mm. all these tools at our disposal, and just how prone we are to, uh, to making poor decisions because our minds are just, uh, just, just need to be kind of rewired. Uh, retrained, I should say, because we come, we come with this full suite of cognitive biases and other types of uh, logical errors and reasoning. But anyway, how, like, what would you say to the average person, you know, who's thinking about buying your books, you know, both, both the first book and this most recent one, Partial Truths, you know, how, how can this information positively impact their lives? <laughs> 
Like, I guess, why, like why, like why should they care? I mean, that's always yeah. an important thing. Like why, why should somebody, totally. why should somebody take the time to kind of learn all of this, read your books? And then, I mean, to go through and actually like really learn these skills takes years of concerted effort. I know, I don't know if we're asking the average person to do that, but yeah, but like, why is it important for people to care about this? Well, I'm sure that the the publisher would like me to say that this will make you happy, rich, attractive, and all that kind of stuff. But that's not what these books are about. Um, I I think on a, from a um, let me give you a modest answer and then a grandiose answer and then I'll I'll, I'll let you be. So the modest yeah, answer okay. is that I don't think I, I can't think of anyone I know who wants to um, hold delusional or untrue beliefs and. I think that by understanding how human minds tend to go wrong, um, you each of us can gain some insight as to how we ourselves are believing things and appreciate at the very least how error prone humans are, right? So I think it's, it's very humbling, right? To, to realize how error prone humans are and each of us being human. So it causes some circumspection in our beliefs, um, kind of dials down uh, the intensity of the beliefs a bit and gives us time to reflect internally and think about it. Perhaps even more importantly, the goal in the first book was to help non-scientists understand what it means when a scientist says they know something. And, and why would they say something like that? And how is a scientific knowledge claim different than any other knowledge claim? And I, I can almost guarantee that um, most lay people do not know what is special about a scientific knowledge claim. And the reason I can guarantee that is I think most scientists don't know what is special about a scientific knowledge claim. I'm not saying that they're not very good at doing science, but when you're sitting around the, the you know Thanksgiving table and someone says to you, well, how do you know that? What, you know, what's the logic behind it? You can, sometimes you're just stammering of, well, facts and this, you know, blah, blah. Um, so I think that it's helpful at, at that level. At a very grandiose level, well, I, I think that it's fair to say that whatever the foibles of human cognition are, they're not serving us well in our society today. I think we can look around and realize that we have lost a common dialogue um, we've lost trust and reflective debate. We're, we're a country and maybe a world of um, polemics and sound bites and anger and distrust. And the goal is to destroy the other side. And if that is your preference, I guess there's, there's nothing to say about that. But I think that we can acknowledge that the reason other people disagree with us is not because they are evil or sinister, but because they see the world differently but they are rational and logical creatures. Well, if they're rational and logical, and I'm rational and logical, how can they see the world differently than I do? Well, if we're both rational and logical, then it must have to do with how humans perceive based upon their existing beliefs. And my, my broader hope would be, be that by reading these books, um, you can give yourself, and, and I'm not saying that many people don't already have it, but you can give yourself a common framework for understanding how human minds think enough to have a, a human cognitive dialogue as opposed to a adversarial hate fest. So anyway, that, that's the answer to your question that may be grotesquely <laughs> optimistic, um, yep. but a little optimism doesn't hurt. No, it certainly doesn't hurt. And um, I love it personally. Um, I mean, that would be like a perfect 
And if you were to condense that into a couple sentences, a fantastic mission statement for what you're doing. That and was a very I polite way of you pointing out that academics are hard at being concise. <laughs> that was excellent. <laughs> you can, I can't, I can't do it, you know? <laughs> no, well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I hope that didn't come off as... Um, no, I'm, I'm making fun of myself. Yeah, yeah, please. okay. I mean, I'm certainly, I certainly can be, have been known to be verbose and I like to be, I think it's because we uh, enjoy precision. And when you, uh, you know, you try to be as precise as possible, not super wordy, but it usually comes out longer than the average person just because we have a lot to say, because uh, we know a lot. But, you know, I, I mean, I subscribe to that 100%. And I, mm -hmm. I just can't think of anything more important in today's world. I mean, we have so many massive problems facing society. Um, I, and I, I always touch on this, but global warming is a big societal problem on a yeah. global scale. Yeah. And just being, being able to communicate about facts and just talk to one another uh, I guess so it's really, really important century. Go ahead. I, I guess to give you the concise answer is that it is my hope that these books would give you the tools to have a good faith attempt to understand other people's points of view, tools you might not currently have. All right. Perfect. We can, uh, we can end it there. Uh, anyway. So James, where can people connect with you? So social media, website, where can they yes. find your books? Well, so the, thank you. Uh, the books can be bought on uh, amazon.com uh, or you can go to my website, jameszimring.com and find information and links to them there. All right, fantastic. Do you, uh, so just send everyone to the website and then are you active on social media at all? Uh, not really, not, not as much really. as people say I should be. Time is <laughs> okay. finite. So yeah, no. <laughs> it's all right. You're, you're saving yourself some mental health there uh, by not being so. super, super active on social media. Um, but anyway, okay, wonderful. Uh, for those of you that have uh, joined us for today's episode, uh, thank you so much for stopping by. We certainly appreciate the report and I hope you uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. If you're watching us on YouTube, go ahead and look, hit that like button. Make sure to share it and uh, stay tuned for more great content moving forward. Take care.